And Jesus said to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, these are the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the, his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we do give you thanks and praise for giving us your word. Help us to understand it, to be transformed by it, and to serve you faithfully according to it, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. If you would grab your Bibles, go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. One of the absolute scariest parts of reading about Jesus in the Gospels is when he comes across out of character. We assume something about Jesus, we assume things about his character, and then suddenly something happens that is so very out of character, and we know it's Jesus that is saying it, and that can be kind of disorienting for us. I suspect that if you think of uh, stories in the Gospels that would fit this pattern, one that would immediately jump out at you would be the cursing of the fig tree. So about three or four days before Jesus was crucified, he is outside of Jerusalem and he's on his way into Jerusalem with his disciples. So he's got a, his entourage, his disciples with him, and as he's walking along the way, he's hungry. He's hungry and he looks and there's a tree off to the side. Now, I, I suspect most of us don't think that way when we immediately get hungry. So you kind of have to translate this a little bit. You know, there's a fast food restaurant or something off to the side. So he says, oh, there's a fig tree. He's hungry. He goes over to the fig tree. He looks at it. It's in bloom. Everything looks beautiful about the fig tree. And so he goes over to it and he looks and there's no figs. There's nothing there. Now, stop for a second. Most of us would appreciate you know, disappointment and maybe a sorrow a little bit. Perhaps you could even go so far as a little bit of frustration. Jesus turns and curses the tree. Like that's the word that's used. He curses the fig tree. And then they go on into the temple area where Jesus looks at the temple and has a confrontation with the temple elders and the temple leaders and with the money changers that are there. And he has a, a frustration with the temple and then the next day, as they're going back into town again, they pass this very same fig tree, and it is withered and died. And the disciples say, Jesus, look at what just took place here. You curse this fig tree, and it withered and died. Now, it feels a little bit like Jesus kind of had a bit of a hissy fit. Or, you know, he kind of, this is the kind of a tantrum that you would expect out of a four-year-old. Uh, you know, I don't get my food, and therefore I'm going to curse something, which is exactly the word, exactly the idea that's happened here. And we know that that's exactly what happened, because the tree responded to the divine curse. It shriveled up, and it died. 
Of course, this is not Jesus having a tantrum. It's not Jesus having a hissy fit or being immature. This was Jesus enacting out a living parable of exactly what took place when he went to the temple. When he's there at the temple, he sees this marvelous, wonderful artifice, this wonderful, beautiful building, and it's glorious in every way. And believe me, by all descriptions, it was glorious. And the picture of, of course, is that this is the place where the people meet with their God. Nothing could be more glorious. And yet Jesus associates the temple with the fig tree. What looks so good on the outside is dead on the inside. And if you're dead on the inside, there is but one place for you to go, and that is to rot and to die. What Jesus enacts out in living character with the fig tree, he's applying directly to the, directly to the temple in Jerusalem. And that lesson that it doesn't matter what's on the outside, it matters what's on the inside, is exactly the lesson that he tries to communicate to the church of Sardis. This is the fifth letter that we just read, the fifth letter out of the seven that we are looking at that Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation. And here we have the following the same format. It starts with an address. This is to the angel of the church of Sardis. Sardis was another one of the seven towns here that were right around seven cities that were right around that uh, uh, southwestern Turkey there. These are the words, and then you have the introduction of the author. And like always, the author introduces himself. Jesus introduces himself with characteristics or with traits that are very appropriate to the actual letter that he's writing, as we'll see here in a second. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven stars were described for us earlier in chapter 1. We know that the seven stars represent the churches themselves, the universal church. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, he's reminding us again that the churches exist by God's decree. The churches are his, that he holds them in his hand, and he directs them and guides them, that he is in the midst of the churches. It's that wonderful picture, again, of Jesus' intimacy with us. He's not speaking randomly when he talks to these churches. He knows what's going on. He's been right there with them. He holds these seven stars and he also holds the, has the seven spirits of God. Now, back in chapter 1, it becomes real clear through the scriptural references and the use of the same term, the seven spirits of God, that here we are talking about the Holy Spirit. That the seven spirits of God is just the author's artistic way of describing the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but what is... Why would you describe it this way? Well, the number seven, as many of you know, are used in biblical times for the number of completeness or totality. So the fullness of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus here directs the fullness of the Spirit of God. Uh, it's also the seven is kind of the imagery here of the, the activity, the, the movement of the Spirit. And so here it's not just Jesus is saying, look, I have the Spirit of God, he is saying, look, uh, the, the activity, the work, the manifold actions of the Holy Spirit are in my hands. And then from the introduction section of the letter, 
you pass then, following the same format as before, into the encouragement part of the letter. And this begins in the middle of verse 1 there. I know your works. Now, this is the setup for all the other letters in, in the book of Revelation, and we should be used to it somewhat by now. This is the setup where he then says, I know your works, and then he goes on to detail some of the positive things that the church is doing. This is the, the encouragement part of the letter. This is the best part to read. And again, one of the things that we're trying to do exegetically here or interpretively is recognize that when Jesus is speaking to the church of Sardis, he's speaking to the universal church, which means he's speaking to this church, this congregation here, and which means he's speaking to every one of us as individuals. And so this encouragement section is always positive because it's, it's nice to, to say, okay, how is Jesus encouraging this particular church and how can we associate that same encouragement with what we are doing? Unfortunately, Sardis kind of breaks the mold. There is no encouragement. This is what Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, if you've been reading these letters, when you get to this statement, this is incredibly jarring. Not because Jesus hasn't leveled some serious accusation at some of the other churches, but usually it happens the way that, you know, criticism is often well received. Hey, here's some things you're doing well. Here's some stuff that you're not doing well. There's none of that here. This is Jesus saying to, Char to Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive. We only can assume that Sardis had a thriving congregation. There's no indication in this letter that there's outside persecution or that there's heresy inside. There's no, there doesn't seem to be any problem with this church. This church, we suppose, had some great programs that were functioning. Perhaps they had a powerful preacher every week. Uh, maybe that they were caring well for one another. Maybe they had these great fellowship opportunities that everybody was taking advantage of. This church from the outside looked like it was really cooking with gas. It's had a wonderful reputation out here, and yet Jesus looks at it and says, look, I'm not going to comment on any of the positive things you're doing because while you have a reputation for being alive, you are dead. Now, what does he mean? He doesn't mean that they're physically dead. He's saying this church has a reputation for being alive, but spiritually, you are powerless. You are doing nothing, nothing for my God. You might, from the outside, look like everything is good, but on the inside, nothing is happening with power. Nothing is happening of faithfulness and of goodness. Now, there's not a single person in this room, if you're a believer, if you've walked with the Lord for a long time or not, that hasn't run into the accusation of hypocrisy. That's exactly what is being leveled here at the church of Sardis. You are hypocrites because on the outside, you look a certain way, and on the inside, you're totally different. One of those jarring moments in Jesus' life 
was when he was interacting with the Pharisees, and he said to them, you are whitewashed tombs. Now, most of us don't spend enough time in graveyards or with whitewash or whatever to recognize what's happening here. A whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you look beautiful. On the outside, everything is clean. On the outside, everything looks attractive. It looks great on the outside. And on the inside, it's just death and decay. Jesus levels that accusation against the Pharisees, and in our minds, that's okay, because the Pharisees are the bad guys. But the Pharisees shouldn't be thought of as the bad guys. The Pharisees should be thought of as us, because that's what Jesus is saying to us. If we're understanding this interpretive model correctly, Jesus is saying, look, here's the church of Sardis and the problem for the church of Sardis, and every congregation must ask themselves that exact same question. And so must Hebron. To what extent does Hebron have a great reputation on the outside, but is powerless and dead on the inside? I associate so heavily with Hebron Church. Every time I'm outside, I meet anybody at all, and we're talking about, hey, what do you do, and stuff like that. I'm a pastor. Oh, where do you pastor? Always comes up. I'm at Hebron Church right there on Frankstown Road, blah, 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 blah. And inevitably, people say, oh, that's a great church. That's a great church. You know, I'm waiting for somebody to say, oh, that's that terrible church that's up on the hill. Things falling apart and all over the place. Nobody ever does that. Everybody says, oh, that's a, it's a great church. And, of course, they mean it, and they talk about the reputation. Hey, there's great programs going on there. There's a lot of things. Uh, you're preaching the Word of God. Oh, yeah, we, we like your sign when we drive by. You know, the graveyard's all really nice. You know, they, they always talk. It's real positive, this great reputation. And I love that. And I hope and pray that there's great reason for that great reputation. But when you read the letter of Sardis, you have to ask yourself, is this a lesson for Hebron Church as well? To what extent do we rest on, do we appreciate our reputation and close our eyes to the rot and the dead that is within. Of course, if our interpretive model is correct, everyone in this room has to be asking themselves the exact same question about themselves. When we think about hypocrisy, all too often we associate it as conscious hypocrisy. I know that I'm not these things, but I'm going to put on airs and act that way. That's not how the scripture necessarily describes it. It describes hypocrisy as on the outside one thing and on the inside something else, if you're conscious of it or not. And so the point is, just like Hebron Church could very easily have a lot of dead here and not nearly be living up to our reputation, what, how do you appear on the outside? And how much does that outside correspond or not with what is going on on the inside? So what is Jesus' response to this church when he says you have a reputation for being alive? What is Jesus' response to Hebron Church, which has a reputation of being alive? 
and yet in some ways perhaps is not nearly as alive as we think? What is Jesus' response to you if you are honest with yourself and you say, I might look a lot more godly on the outside than what I am on the inside? What is his word? Verse 2, Jesus moves, as he always does in each one of these letters, now to a spot of counsel. This is the counsel, the warning, the directive that he gives to this church. He says five things. Wake up. Strengthen what is about to die. Remember what you have received. Obey it. Keep it. And repent. Five things. Now, depending on how you're responding to what I'm saying here, you need to respond either, you can either think of this individually or you can think of this corporately. What is this church going to do about the reputation we have and where the reputation we have may not match reality? What is our responsibility? What is your responsibility as an individual if you sit there and think, I bet you what's on, insi- on the inside is not nearly as great as what shows on the outside. Jesus says five things. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what is about to die. Remember what you have received. Obey it. I've lost myself. Uh, Obey it, keep it, and repent. There, how could I miss that one? Keep and repent. Wake up. Wake up. Now, what do we mean when we talk about waking up? Here, the metaphor shifts a little bit. Jesus has been using this metaphor about being dead. You're dead. Now he says, okay, shift the metaphor for a second. You're, on, you're, you're dreaming. You're sleepwalking through life. You're not alert. You're not attentive. Sardis itself would have been very sensitive to this kind of accusation in its history over the past four or 500 years of Sardis's existence. They had been conquered by enemies three different times, twice in the exact same way. Twice, while the guards were sleeping on the walls, the commandos crawled up a little crack in the wall, climbed over the top and opened up the gates. I mean, it reads just like a James Bond novel when you read these stories. Literally, a, a small group of commandos scaled the wall while, these, while the, the uh, sentries were asleep, flung open the doors, and the city was taken and the city was sacked. And it didn't happen once, it happened twice in a period of Sardis's history. And so when Jesus says to them, wake up, there's a great history here. To be asleep is to think that the world revolves around you. To be alert is to be aware of how you fit into the kingdom of God. To be asleep is to think that the gifts that you have, the money you have, the time that you have, the resources you have, that they belong to you and that they're in your hands. To be alert, to be awake, is to realize that all of those resources belong to the Lord first and foremost, that we at best are stewards of those gifts. To be asleep is to assume that whatever we do impacts us and maybe our immediate family and that's at most to be awake is to recognize that you are part of a people of God and that we are citizens of the new kingdom the kingdom of heaven the difference between being asleep 
and being alert, awake, is huge. Strengthen what is about to fail. How do you strengthen something? It's like anything else. How do you strengthen your faith? You exercise it. Do that which leans into the Lord. Do that. Take upon that action that you can only do by trusting in Jesus Christ. Strengthen that which is, remember, remember what you've received. Now, the idea here is not to live in the past in the glory of the old days. Jesus is not saying, hey, don't you remember those days when everything was wonderful? That's not the point. It's remember what you received. What is it that you, we have received? Every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. What separates a follower of Jesus Christ from the whole rest of the world? It's what we have received when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus starts by saying, I have the sevenfold spirit of God. I have the Holy Spirit. And remember when you receive that, remember what it means to live according to the work of the Spirit of Christ, which is at work in you and is doing great things in your life. Obey it and repent. Obey the Holy Spirit. Obey that which you have received and repent. Over and over again in these letters, Jesus has used the word repent. He has called forth for the churches to repent at different points in the game. And we've got to rehearse that together. What does it mean to repent? It doesn't simply mean to feel sorry for something. That's perhaps part of it. Repenting means a change in our minds. There's an awareness that, hey, things are different. But repent by its very context, by its very essence, is an active word. It's an activity. Repent means to do that differently. What does it mean to repent if you are concerned that maybe you are inside? does not match your outside. It means wake up. Be alert to what the Lord is doing. Strengthen, exercise what faith you have. Exercise it. Give, it, give it strength, give it an opportunity to shine. Remember that the Holy Spirit, he is the one who is directing your life. He is the one that is shaping, molding, and directing all things. Obey what the Spirit says and repent, turn, go a different direction, both in your mind, but actually in your actions. And if so, what? Well, like all of the letters here, Jesus provides for us a promise. And I want you to note this promise well in verse five. To the one who conquers, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of his book, and I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. There's three things here. First, to the one who conquers, I will clothe in white. Now, what does it mean to be clothed in white? The, the Revelation itself, we read this a number of weeks ago, it's got that beautiful imagery of being washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are washed in Christ's blood, and therefore we are clothed in white. And the clothed in whiteness means holiness. It means purity. It means righteousness. And this is not what you do. Don't miss this. It's not once you become perfect, then all these things will happen. It is, this is what God has done for you. He will clothe you in white garments. He 
will make you pure in his eyes. And he will never blot your name out of that book. There is eternal security for you. You are forever safe in his hands. Never fear, never doubt that you are in his center of his palms, in the center of his will and his desires for you. And then finally, he will confess your name before the Father. He will confess your name. You're just not one of the mix. He knows you by name. I remember that wonderful, glorious moment when the most beautiful girl in school called me by name. Henry, you're such a jerk. (laughs) And I thought, oh, she knows my name. This is God identifying you by name. This is our Lord who takes you before his Father and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is my child. And he calls you by name. This is what is ahead for all of those who hearken well the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Great Father in heaven, we would ask for your blessing upon us at this time. We want to hear well what you say and then respond faithfully to it. We acknowledge, Lord, the constant temptation and presence uh, to just be an outward, just to care for our outward reputation and not to be concerned about the inward reality. Lord, we confess that consciously and unconsciously, all too often we are hypocrites Lord, we want to be more and more faithful, more and more godly in all that you do for us. So, Lord Jesus, that you would clothe us with white garments, washed in your blood, that you would hold us firmly in your hands until the very end, and that you would confess our names, you would announce us between the Father, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.